Good morning, church. You guys can all have a seat. We are going to read our passage here in a little bit. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John 18. John chapter 18. All right. So as I was studying for preaching this morning, this week, I was reminded of many times that in this part of Middle Tennessee, we've experienced really, really bad storms. There's a day of heavy gusts of wind, followed by increasingly dark clouds. Then, usually as night comes, the scariest part, our phones go off, our smart devices go off, person on the TV is telling us it's time You're in danger, you need to get inside, go into the inner part of your house, close yourself off from windows, be prepared. As you're sitting there, you can hear your house creaking under the weight of the wind outside. You can hear the facade being ripped away. There's a storm coming your way. You're afraid. You've been hoping It wouldn't be that bad all day long as you've been knowing it was coming, but now in the midst of the darkness and the chaos, you're scared. It's a long time coming, but in that moment, it seems like time slows down and you experience every single thunderclap in slow motion. Jesus is facing a storm in our passage today. He's been warning of that coming storm The storm would be his betrayal, his arrest, and his death on a cross. He referred to this time as his hour. He's been talking about it throughout John's gospel. My hour has not yet come, he would say. He hadn't hidden anything from his disciples on this topic. He had been preparing them from early on, but they were preoccupied by what they thought he meant with the result that when the time actually came, they weren't ready for what it would actually look like. So as we begin to see this hour unfold today in our passage, we begin the passion narrative. That's what this is referred to, the passion narrative. Not the kind of passion of an intense feeling of love that a man and a woman have for each other. Instead, this word passion comes from the Latin participle, passum meaning to suffer or to endure. Our passage today begins this story of the suffering of Jesus as he is on a path to the cross. So let's read it together and then consider what John is telling us. So John chapter 18. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he. Jesus told them. 
Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. And when Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you, I am he. Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the company of soldiers, the commander, and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and tied him up. First they led him to Annas, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be better for one man to die for the people. Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest, so he went in with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter remained standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, the one, who, the one known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the girl who was the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl, who was the doorkeeper, said to Peter, You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? I am not, he said. Now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves, and Peter was standing with them, warming himself. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus answered him. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews gather, and I have spoken, haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officials standing by slapped Jesus, saying, Is this the way you answer the high priest? If I have spoken wrongly, Jesus answered him, give evidence about the wrong. But if rightly, why do you hit me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. There's a lot there. Let's work our way through it. This passage comes on the heels of an extended time of teaching and prayer, spanning all the way back to chapter 14. He had been preparing them for this very hour. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? Where is Jesus going and how can we get there? This becomes the question that must be answered. This is the question that Jesus spends the next three chapters answering. Where is Jesus going? How can we go there too? In chapter 14, verse 25, he said, I've spoken these things to you while I remain with you, with the assumption that he's not going to remain. Then in verse 28 of that chapter, you've heard me tell you, I am going away and I am coming to you. I've told you now before, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe. In 16, chapter 16, verse 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. 
In verse 32 of chapter 16, An hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home. You will leave me alone, yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Jesus is leaving. Back in chapter 13, Peter asked Jesus where he was going. And he said, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. In the span of three chapters, Jesus has set up the events of what's going to happen now. As he is betrayed, as he's falsely accused, and eventually murdered. John has been preparing us for chapter 18 through the first 17 chapters of this entire gospel. This path on which we find Jesus is the one he had been walking his entire life. The purpose for which he was born. This path led directly towards betrayal, towards suffering, towards death. Why? Why was Jesus on this path? It's because you and I are gossips. Jesus is on this path because we're gluttons. He's on this path towards death because we lie, we think of ourselves too highly, we think of others too little, and we think of God even more little than that. We disobey our parents, we dishonor them, we put our own needs before our brothers and sisters, we covet, we steal, we cheat. The Father sent Jesus on a mission of redemption that would bring him to this suffering and death and ultimately to life again so that we might be alive in him. So we're going to look at this passage in two parts today based on the two locations that Jesus is in this passage. First, the Garden of Gethsemane. Second, in the house of Annas. So first, in the garden. All of this takes place in Jerusalem. Everything that is happening right now. The passage opens with, after Jesus said these things, these things being his teaching and prayer of the last chapters, going back to chapter 14, Jesus takes his disciples across the Kidron Valley, the valley directly in front of the entrance of the temple. He goes down into the dark valley. The Hebrew word Kidron actually means the dark place. And he comes up to the other side into this walled olive garden. Sorry, did I just trigger your hunger? No. He, he goes into this walled garden. The other gospel writers call it Gethsemane, the place of the olive press. And he enters into it with them. They're in this walled garden on a dark hillside with an almost full moon outside because it is getting ready for the Passover. That's how we know that. This wasn't an easy place to find Jesus among all the potential places he could have been in Jerusalem. But there was one who knew where Jesus was. Judas. The last time we saw Judas was back in chapter 13. This same night, Jesus called him out and said he would be the one to betray him. 
And John tells us, after Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. After receiving a piece of bread, he immediately left, and it was night. It's still night for Jesus. So Judas left back in chapter 13. Then Jesus taught his disciples for the next few chapters. Jesus then prays in chapter 17. And now here in the garden, Judas shows back up. But he's not alone this time. He brought others with him. First, he brought a band of Roman soldiers. They were from the cohort that was stationed there in Jerusalem that would come there during the time of the feast and festivities to be able to quell any potential rebellion that was sparked by any religious fervor the Jews were feeling. John tells us there were also some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were more like the police for the Jews there. And even some Pharisees were there. Now, why would Roman soldiers show up to this little garden on the outskirts of a city to arrest a rabbi? Well, it was feast time, a time when the Jews from all over the country, now Israel's a relatively small country, but everyone would converge on the city at that time. It's a Roman-occupied city, but there is a group of, this, this people group that's living under them that want freedom. For years had been crying for freedom. All the makings of a revolt were there in Jerusalem at this time, and Rome was afraid. You can imagine the Romans were keen to keep down any potential uprising, so thanks to the tip that Judas provided and the Pharisees' cunning, they procured some troops, and in verse 12 we're told that even enough troops came that there was a captain there with them. That's literally translated a leader of a thousand, shows up in this little garden on the outskirts of the city. The Romans were taking the threat that Jesus and his disciples posed very seriously. They brought with them lanterns, torches, weapons, John tells us. They're going to take down these potential rabble-rousers. Well, next we see that Jesus marks his path. I have fond memories of showing people around where we used to live in Turkey. It was such a historic and beautiful place but I wasn't always a good guide. There was one particular person who gave me the nickname of a German tour guide. No offense against any Germans in the audience, but uh, I tended to go quickly and go until we got there and there was no time to stop and take breaks. My goal was usually to get from point A to point B as fast as possible so that we'd have time to look around when we got there. I remember a few times where I could see a castle up on top of a mountain and instead of taking time to find the easy path that went up to it, these were like thousand year old castles that had started to fall down. There weren't really easy paths to them anymore. So instead, I would just start trekking up the mountain, going through the bramble, cutting down limbs if I had to to get there or walking through them and hitting the people behind me as, as I went through. My goal was to get to the castle, and I didn't care about any encumbrance in my way. John, writing this gospel, decades after the events, looks back at what his friend and master Jesus did as a response to Judas and the soldiers, 
And what we see is that he was resolute. He had a path that he was on, and there was going to be nothing that got in his way. So John tells us that Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, goes out. So please don't read the Passion narrative as a story of this poor good guy who was taken advantage of by some bad guys, because that's not what's happening here. The story of Jesus is one of a purposeful, resolute movement towards the cross. He knew, John tells us, what was going to happen to him because it was why he was sent from the Father. Jesus is the one directing the events here, and not one misstep was made. Jesus doesn't wait for the soldiers to come in and get him. Instead, John tells us, John's there as an eyewitness. He says that Jesus went out to them. If they're in this walled garden, it seems that he went out of it to meet these guys head on. He doesn't wait for the soldiers to speak to him. Instead, Jesus says, who are you seeking? When they said Jesus of Nazareth, he answers, I am he. And what do they do? John says they stepped back and fell to the ground. Here we see one more example in this gospel of Jesus' power and his very being. He answered the soldiers here with the same phrase he said a number of times in John's gospel already. I am. That's literally what he says here. He doesn't say I am he. That's one way of translating it. But literally he says I am. And they fell. John records all of these statements years later. He says in chapter 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Later in chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, I am the door. Chapter 10 later, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. Chapter 15, I am the true vine. All of these harken back to God's words to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. And here, with just the utterance of these words, Judas, the officers of the chief priests and Pharisees, and even the Roman soldiers who did not follow Yahweh, were shocked and they fall down. The all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God had just spoken to them, and their feeble little muscle-bound bodies could not handle the power and the glory. This goes on to show us that it wasn't by their strength that Jesus would be taken into custody that night. John records this so that we can see that with a simple word, Jesus could take them down. Jesus and his men now had the drop on the soldiers. He could have fled and gotten away. They were on the ground. But instead, what does he do? He asks them again. Who are you here for? And they say again, Jesus of Nazareth. He was leading them through the steps of this dance. At that moment, Jesus and his men could have left. They could have hightailed it out of there, but Jesus did not come to the world or even to this very garden for that matter to flee. He went to the garden because Judas would find him there that night. 
And even though these men couldn't handle it, Jesus pressed on. He urges them on. Well, next we see that Jesus protects his own people. Jesus adds this note. If you're looking for me, let these men go. John steps in to tell us a little parenthetical statement here. This was to fulfill the words that he had said. I have not lost one of those you have given me. John here pointing back to what he had already recorded back in the high priestly prayer in chapter 17. Jesus here was the good shepherd. He was showing himself to be what he had already claimed to be. He is the good shepherd. He protects them here physically, foreshadowing what he's about to do for them spiritually. In Sunday school this morning, we were talking about salvation of Rahab, salvation of the people of Israel themselves, and the lack of salvation for the people within Jericho. We're not talking about salvation in those terms the way that we often talk about it in the New Testament. We're talking about a a physical salvation from the wrath of God, not a spiritual salvation necessarily. Here, Jesus is physically protecting his people so that later he can spiritually protect those same people. But not everyone here is on board. There There was Peter. Let's look at the situation that Jesus is in here through Peter's eyes. He deeply loved Jesus. Peter was one of the first ones to become Jesus' disciples, John tells us. He was often rash, sticking both feet in his mouth most of the time. But no one could argue that he wasn't devoted to his master. But he was also scared. He could see the shadow growing over Jesus in the weeks leading up to this. He could see that his master was suffering on this resolute path that he was on. He heard Jesus talking of going away, but Peter couldn't understand it. He said that he was willing to go wherever Jesus was going. He would even die for him. Maybe because Peter still thought that Jesus was some militarized messiah. Maybe he thought this was, this was the way that he needed to go down. Maybe Jesus was going to take back the land of Israel for, for the Romans. And Peter thought that he was going to need to fight, and Peter here was ready. He had been planning. And now when the time came, he drew out his concealed carry weapon, this little sword, and he struck Don't think of a Braveheart-sized sword here. The the word here is used for a dagger. He pulls out this little dinky sword in front of this army of men who, large enough that there's a commander there to lead them. And he strikes, apparently not being fast enough, and the guy ducks out of the way maybe, and he just gets his ear. You're not going to win the kind of battle you're thinking, Peter, with your little... Bilbo sword. But Peter, he acts first, he thinks later, he was too slow, and he gets the guy's ear. As one expositor wrote, the tactic was as pointless as Peter's misunderstanding was total. Peter was clueless as to what was going on here. 
This was not the path that Jesus was on. He didn't come to lead a rebellion against Rome with swords and muscle. He came to lead a rebellion against a very much worse enemy. An enemy that has plagued not just Israel, but Adam's entire race since Genesis 3. And this enemy couldn't be defeated with swords or muscle, but by what Jesus calls here, drinking the cup that the Father has given me. This cup, of which much is spoken about in the Old Testament, was the reason that Jesus had come. What is this cup? Well, in Psalm 75, verse 8, we're told, For there is a cup in the Lord's hand, full of wine, blended with spices, and He pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to the dregs. Isaiah 51, verse 17, we're told, Wake yourself, wake yourself up stand up jerusalem you have who have drunk the cup of this fury from the lord's hand you who have drunk the goblet to the dregs the cup that causes people to stagger this cup of fury from god the father was why jesus had come little baby jesus had this destiny not to sleep while the cattle were lowing but to die the worst death possible not simply by dying on a cross, because many people died on a cross. The Romans loved hanging people on crosses. He came instead to fully drink down the cup of wrath of God for his people's sin. God's fury poured out on Jesus so that his people wouldn't have to drink the cup. Do you believe this is true? Be careful not to answer too quickly. Don't be a Peter here in response to that question, is this true? Because you see, Peter would have said that he believed Jesus' teachings, wouldn't he? He even said that he would follow him all the way to his own death. But then when the time came, he was the first to step away and step into Jesus' path here and try to use his own strength to save himself the first opportunity, he pulls his blade and takes a swing. You see, Peter was scared. He wasn't really confident that Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus had told him the plan. Peter didn't believe the plan. He didn't trust the plan. So he took things into his own hands, grabbing up the weapon and striking. I wonder if you've ever responded to fear in the same way. Do you step in the way of the Lord as He is working in your life for your own good and in your own strength say, I've got this? Do you ever try to add to what Jesus has already accomplished for you? It feels good, doesn't it, to have something to look at and say, look what I did. But in the end, you and I, we look just as foolish as Peter standing in front of a band of soldiers with our silly little dagger. We can't win that fight no more than Peter could have. So that's the first part of this passage, Jesus in the garden. Next, we'll look at Jesus at the house of Annas. Having secured his disciples safely, or their safety, Jesus is arrested by the captain, the group of soldiers, and the officers of the Jews. But it was obviously this later group that was directing things here. 
Because instead of the soldiers taking Jesus back to the military barracks, they take him to the house of Annas. We're told that Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. In fact, Annas himself had been high priest until years earlier he was deposed when a new Roman governor was put in place. But this Annas, having been high priest for years, still held a lot of sway over the religious goings-on of the Jews. He had five sons, one grandson, and one son-in-law who was also, would also become high priest. And right now, it was his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who was serving that office. But Annas was still running the show, so they brought Jesus to him. Now let's step into Annas' shoes for a minute. We were in Peter's earlier. Let's be in Annas' shoes. What is he doing and why is he doing it? Well, Caiaphas, back in chapter 11, if you remember, as the Pharisees were discussing, how are we going to get rid of this Jesus guy? John tells us, you know nothing at all from the words of Caiaphas here. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. Now, he did not say this on his own, John tells us, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Caiaphas and Annas, like Peter, were also afraid. They were afraid that what had already happened to them would either happen again or something even worse. When Rome came in, they cleaned house. You're high priest? Well, guess what? Here's a new governor. You're not high priest anymore. Your power, gone. A new puppet governor put in place. Annas didn't get along with him maybe too well, and so he's booted out of office. And many of the Jews, though, still considered Annas to be the true high priest because they felt like he was wrongly deposed. So much so that in Luke's gospel, in chapter 3, Luke refers to the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas because it's as though Annas is the one really leading the show there with Caiaphas. You can imagine the flags and the bumper stickers coming out, not my high priest. So Caiaphas, back in chapter 11, following along with Annas' thoughts, considered that if they could just get Jesus to take one for the team, then maybe we'd all be better off. Caiaphas' prophecy was right, he just interpreted it wrongly. What Jesus dying for the people meant and what he thought it meant were two very different things. Because again, like Peter, they couldn't imagine what Jesus was actually doing. Even though he told them, they couldn't imagine it. They thought, like Peter, that the fight was against some external enemy. In their case, Rome. And that by strength, they could overcome. You see the parallel here with Peter. Peter thought the Roman army was the enemy. Let's take strength and get them. Caiaphas and Annas thought that Rome was the enemy. They were wrong all the way around. So then John interrupts the flow here and tells us about Peter. What was going on with Peter? He wasn't done for the night there back in the garden. We're told that he was following Jesus from the garden with another disciple. Who was this other disciple? Could be John, though John usually refers to himself as a beloved disciple, not another disciple. 
We don't really know, but it seems that there's some inside information here, so it could have been John. This unnamed disciple, we're told, knew the high priest personally, so he was allowed entrance into the courtyard at Annas' home. And it looks like he had enough clout to get Peter in too. But as he walked by, there's a servant girl who's the doorkeeper. And she said to Peter, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? How'd she know? Was it his accent? Did he smell like fish? Was it that she knew this unnamed disciple was a follower of Jesus and assumed Peter was too? We're not told. But no matter how she knew, it was enough to bring up enough fear in Peter that he says, I am not. Is that interesting? He goes from being unafraid of a troop of Roman soldiers to being afraid of a servant girl. Peter's all over the map in fear here. It's the first of the denials that Jesus had foretold back in chapter 13. I wonder if he knew what was happening at that point. I wonder if he remembered. We're told that he stands out in the courtyard around a fire with others from Caiaphas' and Annas' household, other officers, other servants. What were they talking about? They weren't talking about the Final Four game from last night. What was Peter remembering at that point? of what Jesus had said. Was he remembering what Jesus had said? So again here we see, we, we switch back inside now and we see Jesus again resolute on his path. He's not going to let anyone take the path for him. He's leading the way. So Jesus stands before Annas and Annas asks him, what does he ask him? He asks him about his disciples and about his teaching. Annas is trying to figure out, was Jesus really a threat? Will he get us into trouble with Rome? But by doing this, Annas was actually breaking the, the rules. He was breaking the, the, the Jewish law. According to the Jewish law, there could be no trials at night. And in a legal trial, there would need to be witnesses, as you couldn't ask the defendant to incriminate himself. This was the law. So Jesus responds to Annas. He says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogue and the temple where all the Jews gather. I haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. Peter and this other disciple are outside somewhere. Go ask them. Many of you in the room have heard me teaching in the temples. Why are you not speaking? Why are you trying to get me to say these things? Jesus on the path to the cross is at least trying to get the trial to be a just one. But one of the officials, not caring about the law, not caring about what is right or wrong, he responds by slapping Jesus. There's a lot of that going around, isn't there? Jesus responds, if I've spoken wrongly, give evidence. This isn't about your feelings. This isn't about power struggle here between me leading a rebellion. Give evidence of what I've said that's wrong. But if rightly, why do you hit me? 
do it the right way, but they won't have it. So Annas finally gives up and sends Jesus to Caiaphas. Then John transfers us back into the courtyard. While all this was happening inside, Peter, still out by the fire in the courtyard, is asked by those around him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? And we all know he denies again. And then a servant of the high priest who was a relative of Malchus, the one who Peter had taken his ear off in the garden, and who himself also was there in the garden, we're told, said, didn't I see you with them in the garden? Peter again denied it. And John tells us that immediately a rooster crowed. And that's the last we see of Peter until after the resurrection. So, some thoughts and and a conclusion here. That's the story of the arrest and initial questioning of Jesus. So it's time to ruminate on this passage. You know what it means to ruminate. A, A ruminant animal can't break down the grasses it eats the first time it eats it. So it goes into the rumen in its stomach, it mixes all up in there with good bacteria and breaks it down, and then it throws it back up and eats it again. Mm. Olive Garden. So (laughs) that's what we need to do when we read the scriptures. We need to read it and take it in, do an initial digestion, then we need to go back and think about it. Let's ruminate on some of these things. First thing I want to point to is Jesus' great love for his people. Jesus is on the warpath in this passage. He's on the warpath that his father sent him on that will ultimately save his people. He isn't fighting against Rome. He isn't fighting against corrupt politicians or religious figures. He isn't fighting against backstabbing ex-disciples. Jesus' war is with sin. And the method he will use to win this war is not Peter's hobbit sword or an army of disciples in a dark olive grove. The way Jesus says he will win the war against sin is by drinking the cup of the furious wrath that his father has prepared. And he will drink the cup down to the dregs. That means there's none left. No more wrath for his people. Christian, let me talk to you for a minute. If you struggle with believing that this is true, that Jesus bore all of the wrath that you deserved when he's dying on the cross, let me encourage you to spend time in John's gospel. Read it reread it, memorize it, meditate on it, soak it in. Let Jesus' words of comfort get in there where maybe a cursory reading isn't getting you to if you're having struggle believing that. Focus in even on Jesus' the, the preceding chapters here, chapters 14 through 19. Spend time in those verses to feel the love that Jesus has for you And remember what he did for those who were his people. Second thing we need to ruminate on is if you want to escape the wrath to come, you must be 
his people. Amen. Think of Rahab in the story this morning. How did she escape the wrath that was coming? It's because she saw what Yahweh had done or heard what Yahweh had done. She believed he was able to do it again and she fled to his people. Jesus did not bear all of the sins of all of the people of the world. Sometimes we hear that. But if that were true, and Jesus is paying, is drinking the wrath of God towards sins for every single person, then no one's going to hell. And that goes against what Jesus has told us. In fact, previous chapter, chapter 17, he says, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they are yours. God was going to save his people. God the Father sent the Son to accomplish that on the cross. Just because Jesus drank the cup of the wrath from the Father doesn't mean that God has no more wrath left towards sin. It means there's no more wrath left for sin of his people. There are people who do not trust Jesus as their Redeemer. And as such, they still have full expectation that punishment for their sin is still waiting to be given. And that should frighten you if you're not in the Lord. It should frighten you if you're not trusting Him to be your righteousness. That should frighten you if you still think you can do something to hide your sin from an all-knowing God. In fact, John brings up the cup again in his final writing. John didn't just write this gospel. He wrote the letters of John and he wrote the Revelation, the last book of the Bible. In Revelation 16, there's a seventh angel and the seventh angel pours out a seventh bowl and we're told a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it's done. Now, just a note here, when you read through Revelation, it's a cycle over and over again. And whenever you see thunderclaps, whenever you see earthquakes, that's, that's the cross. John, back in John, a couple chapters later, we're going to hear Jesus say, it is done. And here, a, a voice from the, th the throne <laughs> says, it's finished, it's done. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a severe earthquake occurred where flashes where no other or like no other since people had been on the earth. So great was the quake. The great city split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered in God's presence. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Every island fled and the mountains disappeared. This great city, Babylon the great, represents the whole of mankind turned against God. If you are not in Christ, there is still a cup for you. Let me encourage you to take a different cup. Take the cup that Jesus promised. Take his bread. Take his wine. Become his people. Trust that what Jesus is doing on the cross was real, and what's for you.
You must trust that Jesus died in your place and you must only hope that his righteousness is what will save you, not your own. So the third and final thing I want us to ruminate on is that you and I, us, we, are never too mature to fall. Peter is a glaring warning to us to never be too sure in our own strength. The man who thought that he could take an entire cohort of soldiers with a dagger was caused to spiritually run in fear when questioned by his, about his relationship with Jesus by a servant girl. There are times in our lives when we feel strong in our faith, as though we're at the top of Sanctification Mountain. But beware, you have no idea how far you have to go to the top of that mountain. And you have no idea what the enemy has coming for you to knock you down. Learn from Peter here not to walk too proudly, nor to depend on your own strength. As the author of Hebrews said in chapter 12, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Amen. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is sitting there even now. At this very moment, he is interceding for you. Depend on him. So as we conclude, remember the purposefulness of Jesus in this passage. The resoluteness of him to continue on this path, to set the speed, to set the standard. He was on this path to the cross, and there was nothing that was going to dissuade him from accomplishing his goal, the goal of saving his people from their sin. His hour had come, and as we will see in the coming weeks, what the Father sent him to do, he accomplished. Let's trust him this morning. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. It is true, even when we are 